0: This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out, Talking Science, episode number 53, recorded on March 17th, 2022. (music) Hello, folks. You are listening to the podcast about all things science. I'm Dr. Abby Abdullah, and I am here with Dr. Foner. How you doing? Good. How are you? Can't complain. How's the weather treating you? Uh, Got out of work today. I think it was high 70s, low 80s. Wow. Well, <laughs> we
1: had something similar to that. It was, I think, 60 degrees here. So
0: okay. that's one of the first... It is
1: a hot day. I guess. Yeah. But still, you know, in Fairview, like closer to the lake. I ran outside Go today up, and it was a chilly. bit... It was a bit chillier, yeah. The hoodie helped. It would have been yeah, a little bit cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Did yeah, you just come complain. back from the run. Uh, no, it was. I ran a few hours ago.
0: Ah, oh, nice, nice. Yeah. So, uh, March seventeenth is our podcast anniversary. Did you know that? I,
1: have, uh, I had? I knew it was coming up. I just didn't know the specific date.
0: Yeah, we uh, published our first episode online. On, like, YouTube, uh, well, yeah, iTunes, whatever, and the mm. website, uh, March uh, 17th, I think, ni- no, 2000, and I was gonna say 1980, 2018. Wow. But we started on the radio earlier than that.
1: We did. I remember yeah, it was a yeah. few months before that, yeah. right?
0: We were on the radio first, and then, and then we moved it online. Well, regardless, yeah, four, happy,
1: happy anniversary.
0: Yeah. Four years of doing this. Um, I'm still having fun.
1: It's still going strong. and still it seems like it's crazy how half of that now has been with you know covid as one of the leading headlines and topics yeah, of what we've talked yeah, about insane. it's it's 50% of everything we've put out almost at this point which is crazy
0: yeah yeah but anyway so uh march 17th uh tell us about the birthday so walter rudolph hess
1: was born March 17, 1881, died August 12, 1973. Uh, He obtained his medical degree from the University of Zurich. And he was a Swiss physiologist who is perhaps best known for mapping the areas of the brain that are involved in the control of the visceral organs or the internal organs. And he's especially renowned for his work relating to the hypothalamus and the areas associated, the hypothalamic areas associated with autonomic functions. So let's say things like, uh, I don't know, I mean, the hypothalamus is involved with a lot of different things, right? Uh, let's say digestive control. There are a lot of neurons relating to the hypothalamus when it comes to digestive control. A lot Of, of course, it's the master regulator when it comes to hormonal release and communication with the just, anterior pituitary. <laughs> it's the temperature set point. A lot of nerve pathways go in there to regulate our bodily temperature and responses to changes in external temperature. So a lot of important things there that... Um, Basically helps
0: your uh, body run on autopilot.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. It is the master regulator. Without the
1: hypothalamus, you you don't exist. (laughs) You'd be dead. Yep. You'd be dead. Um, In the 1930s, that's when he began mapping parts of the diencephalon that controlled the internal tissues and organs. Uh, In 1948, he devised the techniques in which he implanted electrodes in the brain of test animals. And then he located areas in the brain that were associated with certain instincts. So pretty cool. And at the time, innovative technology there for for testing Uh how these brain areas, either stimulation or eventually lesions to these brain areas affected these autonomic or internal bodily functions. Um, 1949 received the Nobel prize for physiology or medicine for the discovery of the functional organization of the interbrain as a coordinator of the activities of the internal organs. And he shared the prize with Egas Moniz, if I'm sure I slaughtered that, but Hmm. yeah, I I wouldn't know how to say it any differently. Close close enough, (laughs) but yeah, pretty cool. Uh, Obviously foundation of uh, a lot of, stuff when it comes to, like you you were saying, you know, temperature regulation and, you know, the pathogenesis of a fever that is due to yeah. the uh, hypothalamus being affected and raising the set point temperature of the body or the thermostat, if you will, of the body, increasing it so that we enter into a fever state and mobilize
0: the immune system to fight off pathogens. Yeah, you know, what's uh, interesting about that. <laughs> Uh, they used to award the Nobel Prize much quicker uh, for mm. discoveries, right? And the original uh, the original uh, Nobel Prize will by Alfred Nobel was that the prize be given to someone who uh, did something great in the previous year, right? So they used to be like, oh, you did something in 1948, we gave you the Nobel Prize for it in 1949 or something, but... They have since moved from that model, and now people receive the Nobel Prize sometimes a decade or twenty years after they've done something. Part of that is to avoid controversy, uh, and and the other part is is to uh, you know ensure the right people get the prize, or yeah. also ensure that the discovery is really valid, had a, maybe. a large impact and valid yeah. as well. Yeah. Because there have been some Nobel prizes for some quackery (laughs) that, at the time, was like, "Oh, this is great science," and now we're like, "Yeah, that's a bunch of BS." We should Uh, do an episode
1: on that. uh, Maybe a deep dive into uh, Nobel prizes that maybe wouldn't get awarded. That should
0: not. That should not have been awarded. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. And. uh, Obviously, you know it's a, it's an award that started in the nineteen early nineteen hundreds. So you know, you know a bunch of Nazis have you know uh, received you know received it that now you would mm. you would never give right
1: yeah definitely.
0: Uh, so yeah, now uh, y- you should expect to wait ten, fifteen, twenty years uh, for which that no can be a big award, problem too going. because if Someone you're does.
1: exactly if you're nearing you know if you're further along in your life than you are beginning. Yeah. There's a chance that you're not even going to be around to yeah. not share in the glory, but get your just rewards for doing something significant for the scientific community. Although, you so, know,
0: most, 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 most scientists worthy of science Nobel Prize are being recognized in other ways. Uh, that's true. That's 100%. True. All right, let's okay, do a quick, so- uh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say,
1: uh, why don't you give us an update on the coronavirus numbers and stats as of
0: March 16th? Yes, sir. So we've got globally 463 million or so uh, known cases, right? Uh, emphasis on known cases. The number is much larger. We've talked about that before. Uh, a lot of countries are not testing. Uh, for example, I'm pretty sure Ukraine is not testing today. Yeah. Right? Yeah. For example, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's horrible what's happening over there. Uh, uh, lots of African countries are not tested. Uh, mm-hmm. Worldwide deaths attributed to COVID, 6 million. U.S. cases sitting at around 81.2 million with 992,000 deaths, which looks like we are going to surpass a million. One million. For yeah. sure. hmm U.S. vaccination effort total vaccinated people is at 77%, uh, 65% fully vaccinated, 12% partially vaccinated. Uh, Global vaccination effort sits at 10.6 billion doses, with at least 64% or so receiving uh, one dose. Uh, In poor countries, the number is still at 14% or so. Herd immunity seems to be vaccine herd immunity seems to be elusive in these countries, but they are reaching herd immunity through natural infection, uh, because they're getting infected. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's a resurgence, uh, fourth wave of COVID in Europe right now, it is starting. Uh, It is estimated to uh, reach the US uh, soon. Uh, We're not there yet, but uh, cases will start creeping up again. It is an Omicron variant. We talked about it on the last episode, actually. BA.2 Omicron mm-hmm. variant. We and uh, you know it it, it is uh, far enough from Omicron itself in terms of mutations in the genome. It's not it's not that closely related. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see we'll see what happens. Um, well, there's already there's discussions and I don't know if debates would
1: be the right word, but discussions are beginning about a fourth shot. Maybe what yeah, later this yeah. year. Well,
0: the Pfizer CEO says it's needed, but then again, yeah. he's he's and you know this is not an anti-science podcast, but you know he's motivated by money, of course, of course. That's it. Uh, I mean, that's a huge priority. Yeah, that's why yeah. he's sharing that yeah, news. Of course, yeah. of course. But however, that does not mean that a fourth shot may not be needed, and we've talked about this before on this podcast. Is our objective to have a very high level? of neutralizing antibodies if the answer is yes then you got to keep boosting yeah you you cannot stop boosting if our objective is to have as many neutralizing antibodies as possible and have that number be high Mm -hmm. but if our objective is do we have enough immunity from memory b cells memory t cells that we can then kick into gear and then not land in the hospital and survive COVID, then we're already there with the current vaccine doses. And we may not even need that fourth dose for that. Yeah. Memory responses are strong. Many papers mm-hmm. have shown that. But if you want that neutralizing antibody level high, you may need another booster. Yeah. But again, we, we don't want to talk about that today. Of uh, course. The one thing we want to mention about uh, COVID is long COVID. We've talked about long COVID before, and the brain fog that comes with it. And uh, that
1: that can be significant. The brain fog can last for, I mean, months. months, And I'm certain there are cases where from people who were initially infected, possibly still experiencing side effects. I think in previous episodes, we've talked about the link between COVID and the incidence of mental disorders, uh, like depression things like that yeah so definitely some changes in brain chemistry and the functioning of the brain with different people when they get uh infected with covid and the variants
0: yeah and uh, with some long covid patients i mean some have a brain fog so strong that they can't function yep but there's a paper that came out showing a possible uh, genetic link uh, to that. Uh, and the paper is APOE4, Associates with Increased Risk of Severe COVID, and Cerebral Microhemorrhages and Post-COVID Mental Fatigue. And it's a combination of data from a clinical study and autopsies uh, done in Finland um corky at al i'm not going to butcher the rest of the names on here because they they're all very Finnish and i cannot pronounce those so our apologies but uh, published in uh, acta uh, neuropathologica communications volume number 9 so Basically uh, saying that uh, a strongest uh, link yet genetic link carriership of that uh, APOE4 allele, APO lipoprotein Mm -hmm. uh, 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 has a correlated risk with severe COVID and potentially long COVID. Mm -hmm. But uh, there may be some sort of relief on the horizon because an article that is not peer reviewed yet. So I saw it in a preprint Mm-hmm. Uh, talks about possible treatment, uh, combined uh, sort of triple treatment, to treat those microclots and to treat that platelet pathology in individuals with long COVID, and uh, they found that they can they can uh, resolve some of these symptoms. And uh, again, that paper is in preprint. Once it gets peer reviewed so- and gets published, we'll we'll definitely bring bring it to you again and yeah. discuss it in in detail. But the uh, uh, title of the uh, 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 paper in preprint, again, combined triple treatment of fibrin amyloid microclots, and platelet pathology in individuals with long COVID and post-acute sequelae of COVID, which is now apparently being acron- being given the acronym PASC, which okay. is the first time I see it.
1: Yeah.
0: Wow. Uh, but yeah, so uh, Pretorius uh, et al. on that one. But uh, again, well we'll we'll see it's still uh it's still fresh we don't we we don't have data that's
1: yeah at least it's a promising avenue at this point even if it's in the preprint and very beginning stages but once it's peer-reviewed and you know maybe they make some advances on that and hopefully they can have something that helps to treat the long haulers when it comes to covid especially with that mental fatigue and you know yeah, covid yeah. brain you know maybe brain we finally
0: got uh one of the authors uh to come in and talk to us about it
1: Yeah, that would be cool.
0: Yeah, maybe I'll you know I'll um, I'll send an email. Remind me. Okay, I will. And then I'll remind you to remind me. That'll be fine. Go back and forth. (laughs) So we have a interesting study today, don't we?
1: Yes. Um. So we decided to kind of spend a decent amount of the episode today on just. The nasty and adverse effects of um, early lead exposure and just how prevalent that exposure to lead actually occurs in the United States uh, population, which a lot of these stats and figures that we found going through this, I was kind of shocked about. I didn't realize
0: how how high this incidence rate was. Especially before the advent of unleaded gasoline. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the study we found is called, uh, it, it just recently got published like uh, a couple of weeks ago, maybe. Uh, um, half of US population exposed to adverse lead levels in early childhood. You you, you heard that right. Half yep. of US population exposed to adverse lead levels in early childhood. And authors are Michael uh, uh, or Mikhail McFarland, uh, if He's from Florida State. University, Matt Howard also from FSU, and Aaron Rubin uh, out in Duke, and this is published in the uh, Proceedings of the uh, National Academy of Sciences, prestigious journal, uh, by the way, mm-hmm. which, Definitely. You know, yeah, so the background for this is that uh, toxic uh, effects of, of, of lead are well-documented, well-known, we know this, our listeners know this, I'm sure, we'll talk about it a bit, uh, exposure to lead disrupts healthy development across many organ systems. Uh, most affected is the brain. Other systems affected could be the cardiac system, bone system, etc. And they've been well-documented sort of to lead to deficits in cognitive ability, uh, fine motor skills, even emotional regulation, right? And uh, it, they have also been known to persist over time right
1: and it it has a lot of different it, it's very widespread and nasty in the body because it can affect almost every single organ every single tissue uh it actually in the developing brain so you know the brains of children which is why it's so bad and nasty for children um it can actually interfere with the normal kind of cleanup processes in the brain when it comes to proper neuron formation in children. And that's a process called synaptic pruning, where in order... Synaptic pruning. Synaptic pruning. (laughs) So basically helping to regulate the number of meeting points between neurons found in the brain tissue. Uh, When you think of that synaptic pruning, you're actually reducing the number of uh, synapses or meeting points of neurons in the brain, which when you first hear that sounds like a bad thing, but if you have too much activity in the brain, right, if you have too many synapses, if you don't have the proper amount and the proper regulatory mechanisms there, well, then that leads to alterations in brain chemistry, over-signaling, over-stimulation, and that can lead to the brain abnormalities that are seen in some children who are exposed to lead Early on in life, you know, behavioral, cognitive deficits, uh, possible development of mental disorders, things of that nature. So, and that's just one of the examples of how lead can adversely affect
0: just the most important tissue up here, which is the brain. So how does it, how does it cause, what does it bind to? Is it like, do do we know? Uh,
1: (laughs) Well, I know that it. Has a very strong affinity for electron donor groups uh, in multiple tissues. In terms of the neurons, uh, I I'd have to dig deeper into kind of that study or that review article where I was like looking through and collecting some of this information. But if you think about the fact that it has such a strong affinity for these electron donor groups, these uh, sulfhydryl groups. you know, it binds very readily and it affects a wide range of proteins. uh, So various
0: tissues. In the developing brain, right? It's affecting the development of that brain. It's affecting Mm -hmm. the development of that tissue, synaptic pruning, et cetera, leading to brain abnormalities. Does it affect other organ systems?
1: Oh yeah, it affects, uh, affects, you know, uh, circulation. It affects uh, erythrocytes or red blood cells. It can actually destroy. Um, it can actually decrease the production of red blood cells in the body, and so do, do you get it, anemia? You can get anemia. Yes. Okay. So, and all the nasty symptoms that come about with anemia, you know, uh, fatigue being one of them, and nobody wants anemia for you know very long. That's for sure, especially if your red blood cells aren't regenerating. Um, it destroys cellular membrane integrity by. Um, reducing and causing dysfunction in multiple enzymes throughout huh. the body. Okay. It can also have some nasty effects on the kidneys as well. Now, this all depends on how readily and for how long you're exposed to lead. Okay. But, but it can so affect... So is this,
0: is this concentration dependent? It can be, yes. Okay. And then duration dependent as well? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, so, so 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 the effects can get worse if the lead numbers are higher, and they'll get mm-hmm. worse if you've been exposed for longer. Yes, got it.
1: And and again, uh, I couldn't tell you the numbers offhand, right off the top of my head, but you know, once that lead is inside your body, it will become kind of distributed and localized into a lot of different tissues inside the body, the liver um you know the bone marrow the brain uh, i think the teeth you know yeah, lead can yeah. start becoming localized there so pretty nasty if if the if lead isn't removed and you keep getting constantly exposed to it
0: the current uh speaking of numbers the current clinical concern level is 3.5 micrograms of lead per deciliter of blood okay that's that's what the uh whoever sets this right? FDA, USDA, whatever organizations, that's, that's the number. Gotcha. Uh, r- right now, the clinical concern reference value, if you're above that number, then then they're concerned clinically. Gotcha. Um, yeah, that's 3.5 micrograms per deciliter. Uh, so per was that? 10 milliliters of blood?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So what are some common sources of lead? Uh, for, most, so, for most people.
1: I mean, think about lead-based paint. I would ass- that's largely been becoming, I guess, more reduced. But but if you rent uh,
0: a house that's old, you know, when both you and I worked at Teal College in Greenville, I rented a house that was built in the 30s. So 40s, definitely I mean.
1: lead-based paint there and the pipes. Oh, my
0: my lease had, uh, had a sort of a statement saying there's lead in this house. Mm-hmm. You know, we've painted over it with, like, new paint, but, you know, it's it's there. Yeah.
1: Uh, I mean, think about the gas. Uh, when was it whenever gas started having uh, the removal of lead? Was that? 1980s. Okay. Uh, yeah,
0: 1980s. I think late 1980s uh, unleaded gas started becoming a thing.
1: But think about, you know, spilling into the environment from that gas. If it's mm-hmm. not removed, you have lead there. Mm-hmm. Lead can be found in the pipes. Uh, oh, Flint, Michigan, houses. right? Uh, how,
0: they still have lead in in the pipes in Flint, Michigan, and in, in a lot of areas. They've done a lot yeah. with the cleanup and new piping and everything. But mm-hmm. yeah, no, definitely a problem. So yeah. Thanks, thanks, thanks for that info. Um, the paper looked at. So we tend to think of. Oh, what our what is the exposure level of our children today to lead, et cetera. And um, what what these, uh, what these researchers did is they looked at lead exposure uh, for older Americans mm-hmm. alive today. What was their lead exposure when they were one to five, right? So someone who's in their 60s or 70s today, what was their lead exposure when they were, you know, one to five, so on and so forth. Okay. And um, so, not much long term evidence has been sort of documented for like past lead exposure. And these uh, individuals are termed legacy lead exposures. And uh, so, they think that uh, people exposed in the 1940s through the 1980s as as children uh, were exposed to much higher levels of lead than they are. than children are today and they are adults today and what sort of what, what sort of damage long term have have we done mm-hmm. with that what are the outcomes for them as adults so uh, the us used to have lead in in gasoline effectively between 1960s 1980s you know it was added to cars i guess uh, a, for longevity of engines or something like that i'm i'm not so sure on the reason it's added to gas but it used to be in gas mm-hmm. a- and I think it has to do something with the health and longevity of an engine or a car. Gotcha. And um, as a result of that, blood lead levels were routinely much higher than they were uh, today, uh, especially for the clinical uh, reference today. So like I said earlier, the the clinical reference value of concern is 3.5 micrograms of lead per, per 10 milliliters of blood, so per deciliter of blood, right? And um, so basically, uh, anything above that number is is a problem as of today's value. So this is a retrospective study, right? And mm-hmm. they used data from the U.S. Census and lead in gas consumption statistics. So how how many gallons or tons of metric tons of gallons of whatever uh, of, of leaded gasoline did we burn? Right, and we know from that burning how much ends up in the environment, right? And in terms of lead, and sort of CDC national surveys to estimate the number of of uh, 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 people in the U.S. living uh, who were exposed to various levels of lead as young children. And what's really relevant to the study as well is that they're able to make predictions for the year sort of 2,100 and beyond in terms of the health impacts of, of this. So they looked at individuals who are anywhere between the ages of one and five, and what was their lead exposure between the ages of one and five. And they looked at, okay, how much uh, do we think they had in terms of lead in in, in the blood? So the first thing they, uh, and, and this is a very stark graph, actually, I should have, you know, put it as my background to like share with people, but Basically, you see, as the level of consumption of leaded gasoline goes up, right, the uh, percent of blood lead level also goes up. That number goes up in in children, right? Mm. And then they said, okay, what percent of children had blood levels under five, now today's value is three point five of clinical concern, but mm-hmm. the number the number has shifted, right? It used to be higher, so they said, okay, well, let's standardize it to five. What is the percent of children with blood levels, you know, under uh, lead levels under five, and it, it it inversely proportionally correlates with our use of leaded gasoline, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, in the nineteen seventies, for example, in nineteen seventy, the U.S. consumed two 250,000 metric tons of leaded gasoline. Percentage of children uh, with blood levels uh, that were under five was zero. So everybody had a blood level of lead over five micrograms per deciliter. Pretty much every child had Mm -hmm. levels above current toxic levels.
1: Which is, I mean... Insane. (laughs) Insane. Yeah, pretty much. That's a striking number. Yeah,
0: every child between you know one and five who was in 1970 was aged one and five had levels of lead that is above today's critical level. And
1: that's, I mean, that's a. It's not just barely above; it is most definitely above that reference range. Oh yeah, and who knows how how high it is.
0: Well, they know, right? So yeah. they, did, they, did, they did some math on that, right? So mm-hmm. uh, leaded gasoline consumption, you know, closely mirrors the proportion of children with sort of, you know, blood, blood levels, et cetera. So then they looked at, okay, what levels were they? Who had the highest levels? so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. today, 54% of people alive had blood levels above clinical references. children. had childhood levels above 10. That is three times the current critical clinical level for children. That's insane. And apparently 10 million children or 10 million people alive today as children had levels that were seven times the current clinical level. So then they did this. I know, right? I mean, seven times the current clinical level. So then they did this interesting analysis, right? Because of lead's activity or lead levels being correlating really well with uh, brain cognitive deficits, et cetera. Mm -hmm. They said, okay, due to that fact, due to the fact that, you know, these numbers were really high in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, how many IQ points have we lost collectively? So it turns out collectively, as a nation, at the time of the analysis, collectively, as a nation, uh, we have lost over 800 million IQ points collectively, right? So they did the math. Okay, so it comes out to two point something per individual, right? Mm -hmm. On average, right? Yeah. Uh, But yeah, if you add it all up. Over 800 million IQ points or so lost as a result of this. And uh, so the average, the highest uh, on average uh, really was children born or who were between one and five in the later part of 1960s. So 1966 to 1970, that cohort of individuals lost an average of 5.9 IQ points. For that for that period, you know, if you were between one and five in 1966 through 1970, that that would have been the effect that it would have had on you. Yeah. Uh, The craziest statistic in the paper uh, is that in that group, again, this is an five point nine is an average, right? Mm -hmm. So in that group of 1966 to 1975, who were children in that in that period, seven percent of Americans alive today had blood lead levels that were above 30. Which is that's almost six 10 times. Yeah, 10 times. Yeah, 3.5. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. Eight, nine times or so. Eight, right? let's say, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and apparently that, that kind of exposure is roughly around seven and a half IQ points lost, which can move you a category, right? So if someone... Had an IQ level that puts you, say, in uh, below average cognitive ability, losing 7.4 can move you to, based on IQ numbers, to a diagnosable intellectual disability. So it's
1: direct, it's pretty convincing evidence that this caused a significant change in I mean yeah. just basic yeah. cognition and uh intellectual ability yeah.
0: yeah now there are obviously arguments against the IQ system to test cognitive ability blah blah that's that's mm-hmm. a discussion for another episode but uh you know the system is not without its faults right of course uh but yeah so uh, insane right uh yeah. more more than 50% of Americans living today were exposed to lead levels as children that were almost twice the current acceptable critical level for clinical reference.
1: Yeah, that's uh that's not good. That's that's I mean it's something that we're going to be feeling at least the older generations they're stuck with that for the rest of their lives and we might see evidence of that in other arenas for uh, you know a few more decades, right?
0: Yeah, of course. So, so uh, it, it was up till the nineteen eighties where those numbers of lead, you know, were were high, right? So, yeah. any anybody, you know, our age, uh, even right, children of the eighties uh, w- would have probably, you know, been exposed to this. So, uh, these legacy uh, lead exposures uh, will will remain with the U.S. population for the foreseeable future mm-hmm. up until. You know, these people effectively uh, die of old age, and then mm-hmm. the newer population that was born in the 90s and later, which did not have these lead levels, uh, uh, basically would, would, uh, wouldn't. So the comparison they made, so today, 54% of the population had, uh, as children, blood lead levels that were above the current clinical reference mm-hmm. that number in 2030 so 8 years from now would drop down to 43% because older generation you know would would start dying and then the newer generation has let less lead exposures right yeah so obviously that number will decrease dramatically over time but uh just just 8 years from now that number drops from 54% to 43% and then probably, uh, you know, similarly moving forward.
1: Goes down from there,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, like we were saying, this this is not only very detrimental for brain function, as we saw from that study, showing that multiple generations suffered. Uh, oh, yeah. The drop in IQ, uh, mm-hmm. pretty... What is the? Do you know what the reference range is for like lead poisoning? Whenever you are officially classified as having experienced lead poisoning.
0: I will look that up. Lead poisoning. Um, And I
1: mean, while you do that, but thinking about the if you have severe lead exposure and you are officially diagnosed.
0: Five mcgs per dl. So five micrograms per deciliter. Okay. To be. Well, there is no safe blood level of lead, right? Yes. But, um, well, this is, no, this is saying the clinical, no, we've talked about this. That's not, no, no, that's not what I'm looking for. Micrograms per deciliter. This is exactly what we just talked about, the five microgram level, but now it's been changed to 3.5. Okay. That is the lead poisoning level. <laughs> wow.
1: So that, that low in what we were examining there. Yeah. That's what can be officially classified as having lead
0: poisoning. I found it. So five micrograms per deciliter, you're talking about developmental toxicity, decreased IQ levels, academic abilities, attention-related behaviors, antisocial behaviors, blah, blah, blah. And it also, I'm sorry, go ahead. If you double that to 10, you have developmental toxicity. So delayed puberty, decreased growth hearing. Okay, double that. And then we start getting into the erythrocyte stuff you talked about. Yep. Double the 10 to 20. Increased nerve conduction velocity. Uh, Take the 20 to 40. You're not making hemoglobin anymore. Uh, You're having obviously problems with producing red blood cells. Mm -hmm. Increased risk of hypertension.
1: Yeah, it's been linked to uh, subsequent development of cardiovascular disease, or at least playing a significant role in yeah. uh, cardiovascular disease. It's been linked to uh, neuropathy, so of the yeah, uh, yeah, of the yeah, nerves, yeah. Um, and a lot of endocrine issues as well it can affect the thyroid gland. Um, overall growth, I would imagine it might have a, a ability to dis, disrupt growth hormone and insulin-like growth factor, the main growth hormones that promote growth and tissue formation. Um, yeah, it's a lot of symptoms, right? I mean, headaches, memory problems, belly pain, high blood pressure.
0: Well, above 100, apparently you die. Okay, right. so pretty bad. <laughs> so- yeah. So, but, but some remember 7% of people alive today, or 7% of that group who were children 1966 to 1970 had levels over 30. Yep. That's right? really nasty. Unre- yeah. Crazy. Right. And so we've gone on, we've come a long way in terms of uh, in the US, North America at the very least, US, Canada. Um, well mexico's in north america but i don't think they have the same rigorous uh, lead standards we we do but now oh sorry about the mess That's okay. uh, today's children's lead exposure is significantly less than that of their parents and grandparents but it is much higher than pre-industrial ancestors mm. where your lead exposure was extremely minimal right yeah before the 1800s right and the gains that have been made in the U.S. in terms of EPA control, uh, you know, Environmental Protection Agency, et cetera, and OSHA control of work workplaces, yada, yada. The gains seen in the U.S. are not worldwide, right? Yeah. So according to the UNICEF, which is the United Nations uh, International something, something, uh, roughly around one and a half million children In North America, get exposed to lead poisoning levels. Yeah. In Latin America, that number is 50 million. Wow. In the Middle East, that number is 65 million. Jeez. Right? In South Asia, Southeast Asia, that number is 378 million. That's insane. Right? Right. 378 million in in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, West Africa, etc. That number is anywhere between 130 million to 250 million children getting exposed to blood levels above five micrograms per deciliter. Right? So no, while in America good. that number is one point four American Canada, mm-hmm. that number is over three hundred million in South Asia.
1: Yeah, that's uh That's bad. That's what we would call a bad situation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, those, those gains uh, are not, are not uh, universal. Yeah. Um, yeah. So also I think I just noticed we've been saying deciliter is 10 milliliters. I think it's a hundred.
1: Yes, I think you're right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's one tenth of a liter, right? I just noticed that I've been saying it wrong.
1: We need a conversion calculator opened right. up in a small window right. on our laptop. Yeah,
0: that's right. It's 100 milliliters. Uh, my bad. Okay. Uh, I let us down the wrong path. But okay. um, even in the U.S., those gains are not universal, right? There are yeah. certain municipalities with excellent lead control and certain municipalities without. Point being, you know, Flint, Michigan is a recent example, right? Yeah. Also, uh, communities of color apparently have higher levels than 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 uh, white communities, et cetera, uh, or than the national average.
1: Well, and again, think about what we talked about with buying old houses and uh-huh. residing in old houses that are, I mean, at this point, I don't know, 70, 80, 90 years old. Yeah. And there appears to be a clear economic and... Uh, socioeconomic status link with this where um, underserved populations and at-risk populations probably are going to be more at risk for something like this, unfortunately.
0: And, you know, uh, uh, and we'll, we'll try to wrap up soon, uh, Mm -hmm. but uh, even if you, let's say buy an old house and change all the plumbing, Mm -hmm. your city might still have old lead pipes, just running water. That's what happened in Flint, right? Yep. It was it was city plumbing that was the that, that was the issue, right? And uh, in the US, uh, hundreds if not thousands of small towns still have that problem, right? Yeah. And so, you know, this so in terms of this study, the significance of it, I think, you know, we haven't looked at long-term effects of of these things, you know, 50, 60 years later. And uh, but you know it's nothing new either. Other others other scientists have reported so a dose dependent relationship between childhood exposure mm-hmm. and you know IQ or social mobility even right. Mm-hmm. Um. So part part of the some of the issues with the study is that those levels of blood blood lead levels are not calculated mm-hmm. or not measured directly. Sort of they're inferred right. So they predicted what, based on, you know, sort of the amount of lead in the environment, they predicted what the amount of lead in the blood was in children in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, right? Yep. They did not measure those. Today, we're measuring these values, but... Uh, so it's a predicted versus sort of measured values for these blood lead, but it, it is a pretty good, uh, consistent, I think, and accurate way of calculating it. Yep. Uh, the other thing is... Um, it does not account for immigrants into this country who are children mm, yes. in the 60s, 70s, 80s, somewhere else, right? We are a country of immigrants, you know, we we, we, we have a lot of immigrants into this country. And, and uh, uh, you know, if we just looked at numbers, right, say you're coming from, I don't know, Southeast Asia or Africa or whatever, uh, uh, Latin America, you know, mm-hmm. where these numbers are much, much higher. Yes, uh, then then it you could know, skew the data a bit yeah yeah for sure which yep. you know not not really not really uh i think fully discussed in in, in this study yeah yeah uh other than that uh i think uh that wraps up our discussion unless there's uh something you want to add no i
1: don't think so i mean just i guess at the end of the day be wary of not that you'd even i guess necessarily know about this unless you're purchasing a house that might be older do your do your due diligence uh, I guess make sure obviously avoiding this as much as possible and looking out for the symptoms and uh, hopefully something can be done on a broader initiative and broader scale to help some of those other countries that are experiencing much higher rates of uh, yeah. lead exposure.
0: yeah. Yeah, I mean, if they're still developing, you know, they, uh, you, you got to weigh the, co- I mean, sadly, people weigh the cost of, you know, economic cost of these things, right? Yep. And, um, actually, I should look into it, but I don't know if the infrastructure bill that recently got passed uh, in the US has, has any money in it to address uh, lead, lead uh, in, in plumbing, in water supply. Could definitely
1: be something to touch base on in our next yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah. I, I, follow I, back I, on.
0: I would suspect it's in there, but but I, I don't know. We can double check. Yeah. Cool. Anything else? Right. I think that's it. All right. Well, good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. Indeed. Always. All right, so that's it for our episode today. You can email us at thebiobusters at gmail.com. Uh, you know, check out our Instagram page, uh, smash that subscribe button, uh, and share our podcast if you find the content interesting. Uh and the company wanting, <laughs> you know, send send it around, send it around. Yeah, uh, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music. You can find the videos on Daily Motion. Uh, we have all the links to that in the show notes. Follow and share, and uh, thanks for listening. And uh, see you next time. Thank you. All righty, bye now.